is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today's episode takes on three key questions. One, can your organization achieve representation if you treat it like a math equation? Two, what brand of representation does your organization espouse? Normalization, sterilization, or pluralism? And three, what can you do as a leader to encourage a more pluralistic form of representation? Is representation important? Whenever you have this discussion with organizational leaders, the answer is always the same. It's very important. But in my experience, what important means to one leader is usually different from what it means to another. Let me share a conversation I had with a dean at a very prestigious Canadian business school. The dean was asking me about my thoughts related to diversity among the student population. I explained my disappointment with the lack of representation of black students in the undergrad program. The dean became immediately defensive and said, we have a few black students. I said, yes, but it's hardly representative, especially when we consider the school's main catchment area, Toronto, where black people make up close to 10% of the population. If the school were representative, then of its 500 undergrad students, 50 would be black. But we struggled to have five. The dean immediately reacted by saying, our goal is to be representative nationally. I nodded. The truth is that Black people make up 3.5% of all Canadians. That would mean the school would have about 20 Black students. Well, in the undergrad program, that hasn't happened in the last 100 years. See, the dean was playing a very common game when thinking about representation, and that is to make it a math equation. What the dean was doing was making the school's track record of recruiting black students seem less egregious by changing the reference point. When you have a handful of black students in your program and your goal is 3.5%, it's easy to argue that you're on a journey than if your goal is 10%. Most organizations that espouse a mathematical approach to representation will use geography or the makeup of their customers or donors as a way to determine how representative they need to be. Notice the wording, need to be. Take the example of an organization like Starbucks. Its head office is in Seattle. 7% of Seattle's population is Black. And if you look at the level of Black representation among Starbucks' 42 leaders, it's doing a little better than 7%. Some would argue that means Starbucks is doing well in terms of Black representation on its management team. But suppose you look at Starbucks' global footprint. In that case, 33% of its stores are in Asia and Southeast Asia, yet only 7% of its management team is Asian. From this vantage point, some would argue that Starbucks' management is nothing close to being representative. And yet, from a third perspective, 80% of Starbucks' leadership team is not a visible minority. 
Is that representative for a coffee company that operates across the globe? You might be listening to this and say, wow, it seems like Starbucks is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. See, when companies treat representation as a mathematical equation, representation loses its meaning. When you treat representation as a math equation, you're taking a lowest common denominator approach. Leaders need to think about not asking how representative we need to be and start treating representation less like a pie chart and more like a kaleidoscope. If your organization has too many majorities of one category of people, you're unlikely to be representative because representation doesn't require math. You can see it, you can hear it, and you can feel it. Is espousing a kaleidoscope vision of representation enough? In most of my discussions about representation with organizational leaders, its definition boils down to the following. Representation means reflecting the diverse communities your organization operates in. The key word is reflecting. Remember before COVID-19 when those local carnivals came to town? Well, whenever my nieces and nephew noticed them, we had to go. And one of their favorite things to do was to check out the crazy mirrors. They loved seeing themselves as taller, broader, shorter, among other countless variations. What we see in a crazy mirror is a reflection, much like what we see in our mirrors at home. But unlike our mirrors at home, reflections from a crazy mirror are not accurate. So what does this tell us about the quest for representation in organizations? Organizations have to be aware of the brand of representation they are encouraging. What are the different brands of representation? Well, they're not taller, broader, or shorter. They are normalized, sterilized, and pluralistic. Normalization, the first brand of representation. I recently listened to a podcast where the guest was John Chu, the director of the blockbuster movie Crazy Rich Asians. He describes his first attempt at making a movie in the early 90s. He was a teenager on a family trip to Boston, and he had to haul that old clunky video camera around and take video. The family returned home, and John got his dad to buy him a mixer board so he could connect all the VHS players in the house and put together a short film of the family's vacation. Then, when the movie was complete, he invited his parents and family into the living room, and they watched. And as they watched, his parents cried. Not because the video was great, but because for the first time, they saw their Asian-American family as a normal family, one that fit in and belonged on the screen in front of them, just like they had seen in all their favorite movies. As a minority, when you feel like you're being perceived like you are a member of the majority, well, that feels really good. It feels like you've arrived, and you are often so grateful that you look past the idea that your differences are being overlooked, or that those differences are not really being respected. Instead, they're being normalized. And normalization is a common brand of representation. Without even realizing it, 
many organizations searching for more representation look to hire people from different cultures, genders, and racial backgrounds with whom they feel they have more similarities than differences. In fact, when those differences are unfamiliar or uncomfortable, or when the person being hired has not learned how to appear more vanilla, they often don't get hired. See, a kaleidoscope of normalized hires from different backgrounds does not allow the organization to authentically leverage difference. The message is clear. You are here just not because you're different, but because you are just like us. You've arrived. You've succeeded. And finally, you are legitimate. Sterilization, the second brand of representation. I am an Ismaili Muslim. Ismailis are part of a small sect of Islam. They are culturally diverse and a minority, even among Shia Muslims, who themselves only make up 10% of all Muslims. So you can imagine that Ismailis, historically, have been subject to a great deal of persecution. The result is a nomadic history. The first benefit? Ismailis live in all corners of the world. And the second benefit is that their nomadic history has afforded Ismailis with some interesting skills. Ismailis have become very good at adapting and conforming to their local contexts. The result is a community of people that not only fits in, but tends to do very well in the societies in which they live. In fact, Jean Chrétien, Canada's 20th Prime Minister, joked during the recession of the early 2000s that all his rural town of Shawanigan, Quebec needed to fix their financial woes was about 20 Ismaili entrepreneurs. Why? Because Ismailis know how to fit in and prosper in communities where they are minorities. All of this sounds good, right? I mean, don't we want immigrant communities who can assimilate? Well, it depends. When Ismailis live as religious minorities in countries where tolerance is not a priority, fitting in can be a matter of life and death. But as an Ismaili living in Canada, and one who has lived in the U.S., sometimes I feel torn between my honest opinions on social, political, and religious issues, and the status I've been afforded by society as someone good at fitting in. So traditionally, I've shied away from being overly political or taking an overly pro-Islam stance. Not because I don't have those opinions, but because the places where I have lived and worked tended to reward me when my opinions and behaviors were more sterile than colorful. But that color is my identity. So when the diverse people in an organization who are able to progress up the ranks don't have accents and dress like the majority, and keep their cultural or religious identities at home, the organization is sending a very clear message. We hire and we promote diversity, but only when it looks, sounds, and acts like the majority. We have a preference, and it's for a sterile brand of representation. You know, one that fades into the background. Pluralism, 
the third brand of representation. I want to share with you some audio from the Global Center of Pluralism, an independent charitable organization that works with policy leaders, educators, and community builders around the world to amplify and implement the transformative power of pluralism. You'll hear audio from two of the center's board members. The first speaker is Marwan Al-Mwashir, Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And the second is Dr. Azim Nanji, a member on multiple boards of the Aga Khan Development Network. Both are speaking about their views on why pluralism is important today. The world has become a small place. People don't live in isolation anymore. They don't live in just one particular area where everybody uh, is from the same origin necessarily. In a world like this, people have to learn how to live together. They learn how to accept new ideas. They learn how to accept that truths are not absolute, but uh, are usually relative in nature. And if you learn to accept new ideas and other people's ideas, that's one way of renewal and, and progress. While diversity in our populations is a fact of life, we still haven't developed the intellectual and emotional comfort to be able to live with it and to be able to recognize that it's a, it's a value, it shouldn't be a source of conflict. When pluralism is your organization's brand of representation, you encourage people to be themselves without the pressure of fitting in. Of course, you still encourage people to be contributing organizational citizens and valued members of their teams, but you don't ask them to do those things at the expense of their identity. You allow for different journeys to organizational citizenry. This creates a highly authentic organizational culture, and authentic organizational cultures drive performance. When pluralism is your organization's brand of representation, you encourage people to speak their truth and ensure their safety, because you know that your organization's performance depends on hearing and accepting new ideas and new ways of doing things. When pluralism is your organization's brand of representation, you don't revere tolerance or acceptance, because both depend on the notion of otherizing. Both require a majority to tolerate or accept a minority. In fact, tolerance and acceptance are embedded in an us-and-them mentality. Pluralism is quite the opposite. It requires the realization that diversity is not about tolerating or accepting the other, but rather acknowledging that we are all others, and that diversity is the norm. Diversity is the starting point. It is real universal, and omnipresent. This mindset unlocks barriers to hiring and promoting diverse candidates in a way that can substantially and positively change your organization's capacity for innovation and performance. So how does a leader ensure that their approach to driving representation does not suffer from normalizing difference or sterilizing it? How does a leader ensure that their organization's brand of representation is pluralism. One, identify your organization's brand of representation by having conversations with diverse employees in your organization and asking them if at work 
they've had to trade off being themselves with fitting in. Ask them what you and the organization can do to make this trade-off feel more authentic, in favor of their identity. 2. Assess the rituals that underpin your organizational culture. Is it that annual ski trip to Whistler that solidifies relationships? Or is it consistently showing up at the weekly after-hours get-together at the bar on the corner? Do these rituals allow people to be themselves? Are they in line with people's values and principles? Or do they encourage people to take on a more normalized and sterilized identity so they too can fit in? 3. Does your organization have systems in place that allow those with unique perspectives to speak truth to power? Are there systems that not only encourage this input, but protect individuals from underrepresented groups when they speak up and speak out? Or do the systems and structures in the organization encourage a more voiceless form of hard work? 4. Does your organization encourage storytelling? For example, when your team is tasked with, say, how to sell more turkey bacon in a market where our competitors are blowing up and we're not, is storytelling encouraged? Strong managers encourage team members to engage in storytelling. What has it taken for them as individuals to be legitimate, to grow, to compete? These are not stories that are unfamiliar to people from diverse backgrounds. And although you might be thinking, how will stories of perseverance at the individual level help us sell more turkey bacon? Well, it wouldn't be the first time that someone takes an example from their own lived experience and turns it into a winning idea. Storytelling is pivotal in fostering a pluralistic form of representation. And finally, five. I remember being a teenager and my dad saying to me, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. That old adage applies here. You simply cannot effectively pursue a pluralistic form of representation in your organization if you don't have that brand of representation in your private life. How you live as a leader can certainly have some differences from how you live personally, but achieving pluralistic representation is not a mathematical issue. It's a feelings issue. It's a frank conversations issue. It's a let me be honest with you issue. And if you don't have diverse people in your own life who love you enough to help you understand the nuances of representation, well, leading the charge for pluralistic representation in your organization will be harder. But this is so easy to change. Make a few friends that don't look or act like you. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Dabla Ensemble. To find out more, 
visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A.com. Thank you.